Uh, let me just take a minute to uh, recap what we have gleaned already uh, from the book of Ezra. In the first chapter, we have the release of the people, how that the people were released when the proclamation was made by Cyrus, the king of Persia, who had defeated the enemy in the person of Babylon, if you like, and uh, liberated the people of God from their bondage. Chapter 2 is the registration of the people, the names of those who returned from Babylon to Judah are recorded in the second chapter. Then in chapter 3, we mentioned the responsibility of the people. They had a responsibility to erect the altar and then to lay the foundation of the taber, uh, the taber, uh, of the temple rather. And now in this fourth chapter, there is the resistance to the people. So there's a build-up here. Let's apply this to ourselves. We have been released from the bondage of sin by the Lord's anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have been set free by his matchless grace, the work of the Good Shepherd. Because of that, our names are recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's good to have your name written in heaven. Heaven knows your name tonight. And this is encouragement for the people of God. And then because of that, we have a responsibility to become co-laborers uh, with the one who uh, points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And our responsibility is to seek to uh, enlarge the kingdom of God through our testimony, through our witness, and every endeavor that we can to win the lost for Christ. And then when we're doing all of these things, uh, we're going to face the resistance of the enemy. And I'm sure I've no need to tell you about that. We all have uh, suffered uh, from the resistance of the devil and his crowd. Someone once said, faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. And that is absolutely true. Therefore, we must expect antagonism uh, to gospel activity. And we are experiencing that today, the world over. And we're also experiencing attacks upon our profession of faith. Everybody else can have an opinion except the people of God. They're the oddballs. They're the ones not to be heeded to or listened to. That's the times in which we live. May God give us grace to stand in such an evil day. Whenever God initiates a spiritual work, there is bound to be resistance. Where God works, the devil also works. And we need to be wise regarding the way he does in these times. So it was in the case of these people, the people of God, uh, soon after their return from the land of Babylon, they encountered this opposition from the peoples of the land. So no sooner had the altar been raised, no sooner had the foundation been commenced and laid than the enemies appeared on the scene. Do you see that? And this fourth chapter calls attention to the striking instance of this very thing. The minute they raised the altar, laid the foundation, the enemy appears on the scene. Uh, now in chapter 1, the work was commissioned. In chapter 2, the work was contemplated. In chapter 3, the work was commenced. And sadly, in chapter 4, the work ceased. However, we can go on and give you some insight into the next chapter. The work continued under God. And then in chapter 6, the work was completed. So all is not lost. 
where we're at tonight in this particular portion of this discouragement. But keep this in mind, it gets better in chapter 5 and it gets better in chapter 6 because they're able to complete uh, the work that they were set to do. Now, I've mentioned this already in my opening remarks. This chapter is not in chronological order. The way you need to take this is verses 1 through 5, and then you've got to go to the final verse, verse 24, and link these six verses up. And the reason I say that is because the verses 6 through 23 would be at a much later period of time. In verse 5, you have the mention made of Cyrus, and you have Darius, king of Persia. And then in verse 6, you have Ahasuerus. And then in verse 7, Artaxerxes, these two kings, the latter two kings came much later, uh, according to the date. Uh, so that's the reason why this is just put in there, a parenthesis there. It's a chronological stop, if you like. But we're taking these first five verses and then the final verse, and we link them together. Uh, three things I want to highlight this evening uh, for you. First of all, there is the approach of the enemy, uh, verses 1 and 2, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard, verse 1. Now, from this point on to the end of Nehemiah, there is conflict. That's it, there's conflict. It's long, it's hard, it's irksome, it's difficult, it's discouraging. And sometimes that's the way it is, and we feel this way in the work of God because of the opposition of the enemy and the people who oppose the things of God. Uh, from the start, they faced opposition from these mixed peoples of the land who didn't really want them to inhabit Jerusalem, uh, nor did they want them to rebuild uh, the, the temple. So you have opportunity here, the opportunity given to the people of God, and then you have the opposition. And these two things often go together. If God opens a door of opportunity, uh, you're sure to find that the devil will come to oppose that. So if we start an outreach work and go forward with God, you can be absolutely sure that there will be opposition. Uh, you seek to build a Sunday school and uh, people, children start to come in. You can be absolutely sure the devil will attack that. And if you have sound gospel preaching from the pulpit, you can be absolutely sure that in some way, the devil will attack the congregation, bring division or whatever to distract, to disturb, and to defeat the purposes of God. But the Lord is sovereign in all things. He's the victor. And we've got to trust in him to deal with our enemies. I think, for example, of the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 16. He said, for a great and effective door has opened to me. That's encouragement. A great and effective door is opened unto me. It's a good thing when God opens the door. And then he goes on to add, and there are many adversaries. And it's interesting that the word uh, that is found there in verse 6, uh, translated uh, accusation, is related to the Greek word uh, rendered Satan in Revelation chapter 12 and verse uh, 9. Satan, of course, is the accuser of the brethren and the instigator of all human malice against the Christian and against the Christian church. Now the first attack made by the enemies of God was very subtle. 
they approached the leaders of the people of God and they assumed the guise of friendship. They offered to help. Do you see that there in verse 2? This is what they said. Butter wouldn't melt in their mouth. Let us build with you. They didn't immediately launch an all-out attack against the work of God. Instead, they offered to work with the Jews to help them build. This was a real ecumenical approach. Some things just never change. And that's what happened way back in the days of Ezra. It was an attempt to unify different groups and bring them together at the expense of truth. So we can see what's happening here in these pages and the same thing has been happening in Ulster down through the years and other places down through the centuries. An ecumenical approach. Let us come and join with you and work with you. We're, we're after all, we're serving the same God. This is the same cause. Let's just get together, have a powwow and seek uh, to advance the kingdom of God. And if you believe that, you believe anything in these times. It was a real ecumenical approach. So who was the enemy? Uh, the, the chief enemy here uh, was the Samaritans. Now, they were the descendants of the conquered races the Assyrians had transported to Israel uh, way back in 721, 722, 2 Kings chapter uh, 17. And these different peoples intermarried with the Jews left in the land after the Assyrians had carried away the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, into exile. Uh, lost they were a mixed kind of uh, breed of people, mixed race. And this led to racial and religious confusion. They were like half-breeds, if you like, who feared the Lord yet served their own gods. And they were the main opponents of the people of God. So... When God brought his people back from Babylon, back to Jerusalem, the plan of the enemy was already in place. The people were there, the enemies were there to create difficulties and problems in their work. These people claimed to worship the same God as the Jews, so it seemed logical then that they should be allowed to share in the work. Now on the surface, the Samaritans seemed to be acting like good neighbors. But their offer was dangerous because it was a mixture of many races and they weren't really true Jews. That was the problem. First, the enemy heard. Verse 1. Then in verse 2, they came. And then in verse 3, they said. So they hear about the work. Then they come under the guise of friendship and fellowship. We want to help you. We've got the same uh, thoughts in our hearts. We want to advance this work. And then they said, in a very subtle way, let us work together. You think about Goliath. There you have the people of Israel. And for 40 days in a row, the giant struts out and challenges the people. He's coming to the people. He's not waiting for them to make the move. He's making the move. You think about the word over there in Second John verse 10. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not. You get the Mormons coming. You get the Jehovah Witnesses coming. Don't ask them into the house. 
Don't ask them over the threshold of your home. The Bible is clear. You can witness to them if you so desire on the doorstep the souls that need to be saved. But don't invite them in to sit down for fellowship. Don't invite them for tea. They're the enemies of truth and righteousness because they're bringing not the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of demons and devils, not to be resisted and repudiated. We've got to take a stand for Christ and for righteousness. So we have here the approach of the enemy. The enemy came, you see. Don't you worry about it. Don't you forget this either. The devil will be on your trail. You have a good night in the house of God, a good day in the house of God, a good day in the word. The devil's going to be on your heels right away. He's going to come to you. He wants to take away the joy, the benefit you've received from prayer or study, whatever. Beware of this. That's the way it works. That's the way it operates. He always has done this. It's not going to change now. So then we have in the second place the answer to the enemy. Verse 3. But Zerubbabel, it begins with this but here, but Zerubbabel, and the rest of the chief of the followers of Israel said unto them, You have nothing to do with us. I admire this man. It thrills my soul to hear this man speak. He's saying, No surrender. That's what he's saying here. No. He's taking a stand, you see, for the glory of God. Ye have nothing to do with us. So these leaders were endowed with spiritual perception. That's what we need in these times. So they were really saying no thank you to this very seductive offer. So with this God-given insight, they saw the trap and they unmasked the plot. That's what they did. And although the response may seem sharp and unloving, it was the right thing to do. And sometimes that's the accusation brought when you take a stand for Christ. You don't have any love. You don't have any empathy. You don't have any sympathy for anybody else. That's nonsense. Because we love people, we've got to tell them the truth. We've got to take a stand for righteousness. Now, it may hurt them to hear the message we've got to bring. And I tell you something. If a man preaches the word the way it should be preached, it's going to offend people. Now, we don't go out of our way to offend people. That's not what it's about. But when, preach, when we preach Christ, it's going to offend people. And they're not going to like us. And they're not going to like our church. And they'll despise our church and they'll hate our church. But what else can we do? We've got a conscience before God. We've got a message that can change the world and change sinners. This is the message men and women need to hear. And we have a responsibility to get it out. The glorious message of the gospel. So they saw the trap and they had masked that the whole plot, the whole plan uh, at that particular time. Uh, there was no basis for unity with the Samaritans or the other nations. They took a firm stand. And we can see this to be a, a model for us. Only God's people can truly engage in the Lord's work. That's why the offer of the Samaritans was so dangerous. I suppose they're like people who come and they would say to us, you, you people need to change. You need to water down your message. You know, that's what they say to us. You're taking too big a stand. You've got to be like everybody else and blend in. Other Presbyterians are not like you. Other Methodists are not like you. Baptists are not like you. Why have you people got to be so different? Well, sometimes that's the way it comes to us. But our message is Christ crucified. And a lot of churches don't preach that anymore. They don't preach salvation through the blood of Christ. They don't preach about the cross. And we've got to, with the help of God, expose that and preach Christ 
and lift him up. You've got to be more accommodating. Who says so? The Bible doesn't tell us to do that. Because if these outsiders had begun to mingle with the Jewish element, helping them in the building program, it wouldn't have taken too long for the two groups to start socializing and intermarrying, and that was contrary to the law of Moses. So this is a, a lovey-dovey scene. This is an ecumenical scene. We'll come and help you. We believe the same things. We'll just come and help you out. And the men with spiritual perception said, No. Here I stand, I can do none other. The great Luther. Israel was set apart from other nations. I think I mentioned this before. When the Lord led Jacob and his family down into Egypt, he placed them in a part of the land, uh, Goshen, where they would be separate from the Egyptians. God was preserving them, God was keeping them, God was protecting them, and that's why he put them in that place, because they were to be a separate people unto himself. And, and then when the time came for the Exodus, it, it wasn't as far to get back up into the promised land again, had the people been sensible enough. And so they were set apart uh, from all the other nations because God had a special task for them. And God has a special task for his church. So in the seat of the kingdom of God, praying in the Savior's name, lifting high the standard, not compromising to win the applause of the world, but simply lifting Christ up to men that they may see their sinfulness and the loveliness of the Savior. And may they come to taste and see that God is good. This is what the land needs. This is what the church of God needs today. This is what we need to see. Preaching of Jesus Christ. We must maintain a separated position as our founding forefathers did. Now, the founding fathers were not perfect. And the early days in early churches, they were, they were not perfect. They had many mistakes and so on. Many difficulties and problems. But at least they stood. And God blessed. And in those early times, during the times of the fire and the furnace, God was saving souls. Churches were being built for the glory of God. Let's not have any fanciful ideas about the past. But God is still the same. He hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We need that old-time power, old-time praying power, old-time prevailing and prayer time. Need holy boldness in the Savior's name. There's nothing else. There's no other way. They can't compromise with the world and expect to be blessed. We need the help of God to take a stand, uncompromising stand for the glory of God. So we should not involve in anything that would compromise our testimony, anything that would hinder the work of God. People see everything. People hear everything. And many ungodly people can point the finger, and rightly so, at some of us at times, by the things we do and where we go and the places we tend. They can point the finger. They know what a Christian should be. Sometimes a Christian doesn't even know what a Christian should be. There's so much confusion in these times. So we've got to be careful not to compromise our testimony or hinder the work of God. Now, separation must not be isolation. 
The Lord Jesus Christ was holy and harmless and separate from sinners. But thank God in Luke chapter 15, he sat down with sinners to win them for the glory of God. And God wants the people to be separated unto him, to be a light in the world for the praise of his great name. Many years ago, there was a zoo in England, and they had to pay the visitors for things stolen by the monkeys. And uh, the, the owners of the, the zoo, they were surprised when they made an investigation and discovered what the chief thing was that was being stolen. And it, it turned out to be eyeglasses. He's here. And the monkeys grabbed these glasses when the visitors leaned over to read the small sign on the wall there at the cage. You see, they got too close. And when they got too close, they placed themselves in danger. So if you go to the zoo now, they might shut you in and keep you in, but just make sure you have your glasses on and stand well back. So that's what they were doing. They got far too close, but the leaders of the people here, they didn't get close to the Samaritans. They kept themselves separate from them. Simple story, but there's a truth there that needs to be adhered to. So we've thought about two things. We've got to get on to the third thing. The activity of the enemy, uh, verses 4 through 6. The, the true nature of this offer uh, of the adversaries is seen by the effect produced by the refusal of the people to allow uh, these people to work with them. The Samaritans changed their tune once their offer was spurned. Uh, isn't this a very familiar a picture before as they became the better enemies of God's people. So that lovey-dovey approach didn't really uh, go down well. Uh, they didn't succeed. They now throw off the mask of friendship and they seek to hinder the work by open hostility. Uh, even though the words of peace were on their lips, wickedness was in their hearts, you see. And such is Satan's method in every age. He and the servants will often transform themselves into angels of light because it's easier to deceive the people of God than to deter the saints of God. We'll use deception. We'll, we'll approach them as angels of light. Oh, let's help with this work. Oh, it's a good work. Let, let's join in. Let's, uh, let's give you the, the support and help you need. And you can imagine the remnant uh, thinking, oh, this might be a good thing. This will help us out. We don't have a lot of people here on board helping us. But they turned against them and they began to terrorize them. And they hired uh, professional counselors against them to discredit them before the authorities. And did everything they could to frustrate their purpose. But the enemy had been unmasked. And we're told that they weakened the hands of the people in verse 4. But back in chapter 1 verse 6. We read how the hands of the people were strengthened. This was something meant to discourage the people of God. Maybe you're discouraged in the workplace. Where you work, you don't have too many Christian friends. And they've made fun of you many a time. They've ridiculed your God and the gospel you love. And they've done everything in their power to undermine you. They want you out. They don't want you to have freedom to enjoy the blessing of God and work with them. Maybe there's someone here tonight and this is where you're at. Maybe college or whatever. Hard times, isn't it? It's going to get, become more difficult. 
with a passing of time. And this is what we face every day as the people of God. They want to discourage us. And so they say uh, unkind things about us. And the descriptions they give of believers, like people on the boot of horns, draw sad people, critical people, condemning people. Oh, they don't agree with this and they don't agree with that and they don't agree with something else. What kind of people are they? God's people. That's what kind of people we are. We love the Savior. We love Christ. Love his cause. And we love the ungodly for Jesus' sake. That's the thing. That's the thing we can't see. And they don't realize that we're the best friends they have by telling them the truth. And then finally, there is not only the uh, approach of the enemy and the answer to the enemy and the activity of the enemy, but there is the accomplishment of the enemy. Verse 24, then ceased the work of the house. Isn't that a sad detail? Then ceased the work of the house. Ezra picks up the narrative for a period of time. So 536, the work begins. They have been released in 538 due to the proclamation. Take some time to get back to the land of promise, 536. They get the altar up, they get the foundation laid, and they show great enthusiasm in the days of, of Cyrus. And a few months later, just a few months later, the work comes to a standstill. It doesn't resume until 520, and the work wasn't completed until 520. 15. We'll come to that eventually. But for about 15, 16 years after the altar was erected and the foundation laid, no work was done on the site. The enemy had triumphed. The enemy had put the Jews to silence. The enemy thought they had success. And for that period of time, they did. The deadlock was broken in 520 under the ministry of two minor prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. Read those books for yourself. They tie in with the book of Ezra, Malachi as well. Esther, of course, they all join in. Sometime years apart, but they all tie in together. The project wasn't completed for 20 years. 20 years. The work was not only hindered, the work was halted. And the persecution which began in the days of Cyrus dragged on for 80 years. 80 years. God had called them to do a work. They had some success. And then the time came when the work has ceased. It's halted. Year goes past, another year goes past, until the prophets arrive on the scene. They begin to minister the word of God. The enemy has had partial success. They thought they had the last word. But God had the last word. God had the last word. How did he do it? He sent a time of refreshment through the preaching of the word. Through the ministry of these two prophets. A few messages, a few sermons. And the tide turned. The work recommenced in 520, inside five years. It was finished, we'll come to that. And the day came when it was announced, it was finished. 
And that reminds me of Christ, the enemies of Christ in the days of his flesh and the days of his ministry. Oh, we've got him now. We have triumphed over Christ. This is the end of this rabble rouser here. And then on the cross, in agonies and blood, he raised his voice and he said, It is finished. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. The devil was defeated. And he is defeated. And that's why the church of God can enjoy liberty and victory. Because there is power in his blood. And the Holy Ghost has been given through the work of Christ on the cross. And so let us seek to guard our testimony. Not to compromise with the ungodly. Not to compromise with the world. No matter what kind of pressure they put on us. But take a stand like those men that are way back then. You have nothing to do with us. We're the Lord's people. We're building a house for God. And who had the last say? The Lord had the last say. He always does. We'll come back next time and see how the work commenced again. Uh, continued, rather. Let's bow for prayer and seek the Lord together. Lord, we thank thee again tonight for the privilege of prayer. O oh God, stir us up. Lead us out in true believing prayer. Let's lay hold upon God. We've learned something tonight about the work of the enemy. Uh, we see how the enemy operates and works and the successes he did have. But the Lord had a purpose. And God used his word to send the breath of revival among the people. The tide turned, the work resumed, the work was completed, and the Lord got all of the glory, and the enemies were silenced and shut up. Oh God, do it again in our day. Visit us with power in this congregation. Bless thy servant on the Lord's day as he comes to preach. Give him uh, the unction of the Holy Spirit. Bring in new families, new people, new children for the Sunday school, new people for the young people's work. Bless the open-air testimony there as well. Uh, that's a hard place to stand for God. Many people oppose this. They don't like to be disturbed in their sin. But, oh, God, give power there in the preaching for that group who so faithfully stand for thee. We pray that the Lord will come in in power. Do us good. Save our land. Turn the tide in Jesus' name. And, oh, God, hear us as we pray and liberate us now in prayer. And may there be a good... Steady chain of true believing prayer, laying hold upon God for the rest of the time that we have together in God's house tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.